This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn. Instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on business, software, web development, graphic design, and more. For a free trial, visit lynda.com slash smart. That's L-Y-N-D-A, lynda.com slash smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode 35, in between episode 8. This is an in-between episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, so the format will be a little bit different from other episodes of the show, and we aren't going to have an expert, we aren't going to have any cookies, anything like that, but we will have a lot of that coming up in the future. We have an episode coming up about procrastination. We have one coming up about the Dunning-Kruger effect. We have one coming up about optimism bias, and another one about fear, and about the uh, the psychology of how people deal with uh, epidemics and how doctors deal with their own emotions and how doctors deal with cognitive biases and how they protect themselves from it. And, um, all of those episodes are going to be really cool because we have, um, scientists and doctors and, uh, psychologists and people who are going to help us understand each one in the Dunning Kruger episode. We have Dr. Dunning of the Dunning Kruger effect. Um, and in the optimism bias episode, we have Tally Sherrod, who is, uh, she was on the cover of time recently. So, um, those are going to be really cool episodes today, though, we're going to talk about a specific logical fallacy. And if you've never heard of logical fallacies before, even though we talk about them on the show, I assume that a lot of people, this is their first episode. Maybe you've never heard of what, what these are. And it sounds like it's some sort of a uh, complicated term, but it's not. It's just, you know, when you get into a discussion or an argument, or you're trying to reach a conclusion or make a decision, sometimes you know, argumentation is the way that you go about reasoning. You, you, you say, well, I'm going to do this because of this, and this is right because of that. And if you think of those, those as sort of like word puzzles, as if they're like a mathematical formula, sometimes you can skip a step or get caught up in your own, in your own reasoning. And you don't realize you've done that and you end up making a mistake and you don't know it. And you think that you're, you're reaching your conclusion in a purely logical and rational manner. But you didn't because you committed a logical fallacy. So here is uh, here's a simple example. Let's uh, let's use the genetic fallacy. Say you're you're having an argument with your with your mom, and her argument is that um, you she's trying to tell you, hey, I don't think you need to go outside for the next six weeks because Ebola is everywhere and it's killing everyone. And uh, you know her conclusion is that people. Her argument is people should not go outside for six weeks because. Ebola is likely to kill you. And you say, I think people should go outside as much as they want because Ebola is not likely to kill you. And she says, why do you think that? And to support your argument, you say, I heard on NPR this morning from a doctor that Ebola is far less dangerous than the flu. More people are going to die from the flu. If you're going to be scared of something, uh, be scared of that. Get your flu shot. 
You can hurt other people if you get it. Please do that. And that Ebola is, is not that much of a threat. It's very unlikely you're going to get it, especially in this area of the country. It's fine. Now, she says in response to that, to try to knock your argument down and to support her argument, um, that came from NPR. And you know how the liberal media is, and it's probably... See, instead of trying to address if whether or not what you just said is true, if you can maybe verify it from other sources or try to see if there's uh, there's uh, there's some sort of research that you can do into the flu versus Ebola and where you live and all this kind of stuff, instead of doing all that, she's just discounting everything you've said based off the source of the information you've just presented. And uh, that is a logical fallacy. Obviously, it's it's it seems... It seems like you're being reasonable, but you're not. And your source, even if your source was terrible, even if your source was, uh, you know, uh, Oscar the Grouch, it still might be good information. It still might be a good argument. It's not, it's a fallacy to completely stop right there just because of the source of the information. And that's why it's considered a logical fallacy. You can make that, you can make the genetic fallacy even simpler. You could say, um, uh, I, one person says 10 plus 10 is 20. And the other person says, uh, no, 10 plus 10 is 30. And you're like, well, I argue that 10 plus 10 equals 20. I mean, let's just work it out. And the other person says, no, 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 no need, no need. 10 plus 10 is 30. I, I read it in the New York times this morning. And that that's a genetic fallacy because just because it comes from a reputable source doesn't mean the actual information is correct. You need to judge the information itself. Go get 10 apples and 10 more apples and put them next to each other and see if it actually equals 20. Don't just uh, base your argument on the sources of the information that's being presented. That is the genetic fallacy, a very simple one to understand. So we're going to talk about one that's a little more complicated now, and it's more fun to talk about, I think. It's uh, the sunk cost fallacy. about how human beings deal with loss from a video game called Farmville. And you've probably heard of this game. In 2010, one in five Facebook users had a Farmville account. And the barrage of updates generated by this game, it annoyed other users so much, it forced the social network to change how users sent messages. At its peak, 84 million people played it, a number greater than the population of Italy. Farmville accounts have steadily shrunk since then. About 50 million people were still playing the game in 2011, which is still impressive considering the fantasy mega game World of Warcraft boasted about a quarter as many players at that same time. And in late 2012, Zynga, the company behind the game, it launched Farmville 2. And by January of 2013, more than 42 million people had joined up to try it out. And today, Farmville 2 is in the top 20 still. It's actually number 20 in the uh, 20 most popular apps on Facebook, beat out by things like Spotify and Tinder and uh, Candy Crush. So it's still there in the top 20. So something with this much staying power, something that this many people have played for this long, it must promise potent, unadulterated joy, right? Actually, I think that the lasting appeal of Farmville has little to do with fun. 
And to understand why people commit to this game and what it can teach you about the addictive nature of investment, you must first understand how your fear of loss leads to the sunk cost fallacy. The psychologist Daniel Kahneman, in his book Thinking Fast and Slow, he writes about how he and his colleague Amos Tversky, through their work in the 1970s and 80s, uncovered the imbalance between losses and gains in your mind. Kahneman explains that since all decisions involve uncertainty about the future, the human brain that you use to make decisions has evolved an automatic and unconscious system for judging how to proceed when a potential for loss arises. Kahneman says... Organisms that placed more urgency on avoiding threats than they did on maximizing opportunities were more likely to pass on their genes. So, over time, the prospect of losses has become a more powerful motivator in your behavior than the promise of gains. And whenever possible, you try to avoid losses of any kind. And when comparing losses to gains, you just don't treat them equally. The results of the experiments that Kahneman and Tversky did and the results of many others who've replicated and expanded on them have teased out an inborn loss aversion ratio. When offered a chance to accept or reject a gamble, most people refuse to make a bet unless the possible payoff is around double the potential loss. Behavioral economist Dan Ariely, he adds a fascinating twist to loss aversion in his book, Predictably Irrational. He writes that when factoring the costs of any exchange, you tend to focus more on what you may lose in the bargain than on what you stand to gain. He calls this, quote, the pain of paying, and it arises, he says, whenever you must give up anything you own. The precise moment doesn't really matter at first. You, you'll just feel that pain no matter what price you must pay, and it will influence your decisions and your behaviors. In one of his experiments, Ariali set up a booth in a well-trafficked area. Passersby could purchase chocolates, uh, Hershey's Kisses for one penny, or a piece of lint truffles for 15 cents each. And the majority of people who faced this offer, they chose the truffles. It was a fine deal considering, you know, the quality differences and the normal prices of both of those items. Ariali then set up another booth with the same two choices, but he lowered the price by one cent each thus making these kisses cost nothing and the truffles cost 14 cents a piece. Now this time, a total behavioral change. The vast majority of people selected the kisses instead of the truffles. Now, if people acted on pure mathematical logic, and this is something that Ariali explains, there should have been no change in the behavior of those subjects. The price difference was the same, but you don't think in that way. Your loss aversion system is always vigilant and it's waiting on standby to keep you from giving up more than you can afford to spare. So you calculate the balance between cost and reward whenever possible. Now he speculates that this is why you accumulate free tchotchkes you don't really want or, or need and why you find it so tempting to accept shady deals if they offer a free gift. Or it's also why you choose... Uh, you know, decent services that offer free shipping over better services that do not. When anything is offered free of charge, Ariely believes your loss aversion system remains inactive. And without it, you don't weigh the pros and cons with as much attention to detail as you would if you had to factor in potential losses. In 
in general, what we're saying here is what we've learned, what, what psychology is, is, is under, is starting to understand about the human mind is that when you lose something permanently, it hurts. And the drive to mitigate this negative emotion leads to strange behaviors. For instance, have you ever gone to see a movie only to realize that within 15 minutes or so that you are watching one of the worst films ever made, but you sit through it anyway? You don't want to waste that money, so you slide back in your chair and you just suffer. Uh, maybe you once bought non-refundable tickets to a concert, and when the night arrived, you felt sick or tired or hungover. Uh, perhaps something more appealing was happening at that exact same time but you still went to the concert anyway, even though you didn't want to. And you did it in order to justify spending money you knew you could never get back. <laughs> what about that time that you, um, you made it home with a bag of burritos and after the first bite, you suspected they might've been filled with salsa-infused dog food, but you ate them anyway, not wanting to waste either food or money. I bet you've experienced something like that, a version of any one of those. And if so, then you have fallen victim to the sunk cost fallacy. Sunk costs are payments or investments that can never be recovered. So an Android with a fully functioning logic brain full of circuits of, uh, of, of pure mathematical uh, reasoning would never make a decision that took sunk costs into account. But you would because you're an emotional human being and your aversion to loss often leads you right into things like this. Uh, a confirmed loss lingers and grows in your mind. It becomes larger in your, in your history than it was when you first felt it. And whenever this clinging to the past becomes a factor in making decisions about the future, well, you run a, a risk of being derailed by this sort of illogical thinking. Hal Arquez and Catherine Bloomer, they created an experiment in 1985 that really demonstrated this tendency to go fuzzy when sunk costs come along. They asked a series of subjects and, and you, 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 you play along, see what you would do. So they asked these subjects to imagine that they just spent $100 on a ticket for a ski trip in Michigan. But right after that, they find that there's a better ski trip on sale in Wisconsin for $50. And they decide, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and buy a ticket for that too. But then they realize that these two, these two trips overlap. There's no way they can go to both of them and they can't get a refund and they can't resell the tickets. So which one do you, are you going to go on? The $100 good vacation or the $50 great one? You can't get your money back and you've already spent the money on both. Now, more than half of the people in the study, they decide to just go ahead and go to the expensive vacation anyway. It may not have promised to be as much fun, but the loss, it seemed greater than if they take the cheap vacation instead. And that's the fallacy at work because the money is gone no matter what. You can't get it back. And this fallacy prevents you from realizing that the best choice is really whatever promises the best experience in the future or the less pain, not that which negates this feeling of loss in the past. 
Kahneman and Tversky, they also uh, did an experiment about sunk costs. And I love this experiment. It's uh, if you're at a party, this is the good one to bring up and see what people would do. Let's see how you do on it. Okay. Now, imagine you go see a movie that costs $10 for a ticket. And when you open your wallet or your purse, you realize that you have lost a $10 bill. Would you still buy a ticket to see the movie? Well, you probably would, of course. And in the study, only 12% of subjects said that they would not. Now, imagine you go to see a movie and you pay $10 and you get a ticket. But right before you hand it over, you realize that you've lost that ticket. Would you then go back and buy another one? Maybe you would, but it would probably hurt more, right? Doesn't it feel like it's a greater loss? Well, in the experiment, 54% of people said that they would not. And the situation is exactly the same. You lose $10 and then you must pay $10 to see the movie. But the second scenario feels different. In the first, 12% of subjects wouldn't. In the second, 54% wouldn't. And it seems that the money was assigned to a specific purpose in the second version. And then you lost it. And man, that kind of loss really sucks. get back to Farmville. Remember we were talking about Farmville in the beginning and we were saying that Farmville is a great illustration of sunk costs. It's a great illustration of dealing with loss and Farmville is very addictive. In fact, people have actually lost their jobs playing Farmville. They've lost their jobs over their commitment to this game. And so Farmville is a valuable tool for understanding your weakness in the face of loss. And the sunk cost fallacy is the engine that keeps Farmville running. And the original developers of Farmville, they, they knew that. See, Farmville is free. And the first time you log on, you're transported to this, this patch of grass where you float above an abeyant young farmhand eager to get to work. And his will is your will. And his world is empty, save this land ready to be plowed and a crop of vegetables ready to be picked. Wading into that experience, it feels like the designers have made every attempt to turn your head toward the screen in this very unobtrusive way, in the least obtrusive but most insidious way possible. It's all your choice, they seem to be saying, and no one's forcing you to proceed. Here, harvest some beans. Hey, why not plant some seed? Oh, look, you could, you could plow a patch of land, you know, if you want. And this loading bar, it appears and then it quickly fills as you watch your, uh, your grinning avatar and his messy hair and his... Uh, his virtually dirty overalls, and there's this cheery music which sounds sort of like a cyborg interpretation of clumsily extracted memories from the brain of a reanimated Old West piano player. And it, and this music, it drones on and on. This, the moment that the loop restarts, it's, it's difficult to pinpoint. And within a few minutes, you've done everything that can be done on your first garden. But there are hints all over the screen portending a fully functioning Texas ranch-sized mega farm should you plant your seeds well? 
there are many things you can do in Farmville once you get going. You can uh, you can buy animals, you can buy all sorts of props, buildings, devices. You have currency that you can use to get caramel apple trees and honeybees. And then you can also plow things and, and plant things and watch things ripen and, and just take care of a big farm. And a lot of what you do requires you to come back many hours later to, to, to harvest or to check on it or to water it or that sort of thing. And this is the powerful force behind Farmville. Playing Farmville is a commitment to a virtual life form. And your neglect has consequences. If you don't return, all of your investments, they will die. And it feels, if they die, it feels like you've wasted your time and your money, virtual, sometimes real, and all this effort. And the thing is, you have to return to the game later to reap the rewards of the time and money that you're spending now. And if you don't, not only do you not get rewarded, but you will lose your investments. And to stave off these feelings, you can pay the company behind Farmville real world money or participate in offers from advertisers that will negate the need to tend to certain things and reverse the death of crops or expand your farm ahead of schedule. And you can also ask your friends to help. That's where Facebook came in, and that's how it became so annoying because the game had so many tendrils reaching deep into the social network. So people will engage in all of these behaviors. They will take part in all of these strategies to keep the fallacy at bay for a few days. But that also feeds the fallacy, you see. The urge to stay the course and keep your farm flourishing gets more powerful the more you invest in it. The more you ask others for help, the more time you spend thinking about it. People will set alarms to wake up in the middle of the night to keep their farms alive. So you're continuing to play Farmville not to have fun, but to avoid negative emotions. It isn't the crop you are harvesting but something within your fallacy. You you return and click to patch cracks in a dam, holding something back, something icky in your mind. This sense that you've wasted something and you can never get it back. Now, to say Farmville has been successful is, you know, that is an, a real understatement because it's led to the creation of a whole new genre of entertainment that was very popular a few years ago and has sort of mutated into new forms today. Hundreds of millions of dollars are being generated by social gaming, have been generated by social gaming, and all of the things that have been learned so far, from World of Warcraft to Farmville to other kinds of apps that maybe you don't even consider to be games or or you don't consider to have this experience baked into them, they do oftentimes use these social hooks, these uh, these drives to keep you coming back for more, to keep you interacting with with the program. See, like so many profitable businesses, someone is hedging their bets against a predictable weakness in your behavior in order to turn a profit. Farmville players, they're mired in a pit of sunk costs, and they can never get back that time or money that they've spent. But they'll keep playing to avoid feeling that pain of loss and the ugly sensation that waste creates. Now, you may not play Farmville. You may not play destiny. You you may not play any of these games or mess around with any of these apps, but there's probably something similar in your life. It could be a degree that you want to change or a career you want to escape or a relationship you know is rotten and you don't stick with it or return to it over and over again to create good experiences and pleasant memories, but to hold back the negative emotions you expect to feel. If you accept the loss of time, effort, money, or whatever else, you have invested.
So here's a, a thought experiment. Imagine you've dropped your cell phone over the edge of a cruise ship. Now you would need James Cameron's unmanned submarine fleet to find that cell phone again. And you could spend a small fortune to retrieve it or not because you know you wouldn't throw good money after bad. And so when an argument like this is laid out like that, logical and rational and easy to pick apart, you can pat yourself on the back for being such a reasonable human being. But unfortunately, sunk costs in life, they just aren't so easy to see. And when something is gone forever, it can, it can be difficult to realize it. The past isn't as tangible a concept as the seafloor, yet it is just as untouchable. And what is left behind is just as irretrievable. Sunk costs, they drive wars, they push up prices in auctions, and they keep failed political policies alive. The fallacy makes you finish the meal when you're already full. It, it fills your home with things you no longer want or use. I mean, every, every garage sale is a funeral for someone's sunk costs. This, this fallacy, the sunk cost fallacy, it's sometimes called the, the Concord fallacy when it's used to describe an escalation of commitment. And it's a reference to the construction of the first commercial supersonic airliner because early on, that project was predicted to be a failure, but everyone involved, they kept going. Their shared investment, it built a hefty psychological burden that outweighed their better judgments. After losing an incredible amount of money and effort and time, they just did not want to give up. And this is a noble and exclusively human proclivity, this desire to persevere, this will to stay the course. And studies actually show that lower animals and small children, they do not commit this fallacy. Wasps and worms, rats and raccoons, toddlers and tykes, they don't care how much money they've invested or how much goes to waste. They can only see immediate losses and gains. As an adult human being, you have the gift of reflection and regret, and you can predict a future, a future place where you must admit your efforts were in vain, your losses permanent. And when you accept the truth, it's going to hurt. That was The Sunk Cost Fallacy, an excerpt from the book, You Are Now Less Dumb, the sequel to the book, You Are Not So Smart. And pay attention to these sunk costs. They're everywhere, and we tend to be very susceptible to them. And especially if you hear someone say this, or you you notice yourself saying something along the lines of, I don't want to have done this in vain. Uh, we, we have to do this because we don't want to have wasted, yada, yada, yada. It's... um. It's oftentimes uh, the situation arises where you feel that sensation, that emotion, that uh, that feeling that you don't want something to have been done in vain. But if you were to have a, a chance to back away from it and see it from a more objective standpoint, you would see that to continue what you're doing or to invest more in whatever you're doing would actually cost you more in the long run. It could also lead to more damage. Um, 
and you know, you'll end up paying more than you've already paid, even though you feel like at this point had what you're doing is a loss. And, uh, if you ever hear that term, do something in vain, mm, there might be a chance there are sunk costs involved and you're committing the sunk cost fallacy. All right, we're going to talk more about some uh, self-delusion news in just a second. But first, a word from our sponsors. Looking for tutorials and advice and instructions Looking for information from experts on the internet, it's like pulling on the handle on a slot machine of knowledge. You never know if you're going to get a winning piece of information or if it's just some sort of opinion. And I wish somebody would invent a website where experts tell you how to do things the right way. You know what? Somebody did. It's called lynda.com. L-Y-N-D-A dot com. And right now, We've worked out a deal with lynda.com to provide you with a special offer to access all of their courses free for seven days, free, one week, free. You can just get on there and mess around with it and learn, gorge yourself on knowledge by going to lynda.com slash smart, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart. Lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn. You can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on software, web development, graphic design, and more. And they have fresh content because they work directly with industry experts and software companies to provide timely training, often the same day that new versions of releases hit the market, so you're always up to speed. And it's easy to learn from lynda.com because they have these video tutorials that also have uh, transcripts that you can search, and they're high quality. They're not homemade videos. And they're broken into bite-sized pieces so you can learn at your own pace, like a course, like a like a class. Except, of course... You're in control. If you need to skip to the end, you skip to the end. If you there's one particular thing you're trying to learn, you can skip to that thing. And since they're organized from beginner to uh, expert, that means that if you already have a lot of experience in whatever it is that you're learning about, like, let's say it's Photoshop or After Effects or Cubase or Reason or IT or marketing or web design or whatever it is, you can move past the point that beginners would need to go into as they're just wading into the experience. And you can actually get certificates of course completion which you can publish to your LinkedIn profile, which is really great if you are a professional in the field. And you can organize these things together into playlists. There, there are playlists already selected for you. And you can get this stuff on an iPhone, an iPad, or an Android. There are apps for all of these things. And if you, if you want to become a member of this service, it's a low monthly price of $25. And that gives you access to more than 100,000 video tutorials. And premium members who get an annual plan, they can download courses to their iPhone, iPad, or Android and watch them offline. And a premium plan member can also download the project files and practice right along with the instructor. I've already taken one course on audio engineering, microphones, interfaces, mixers, programs, things like that. And now I'm taking another one on user interfaces to help me with a lecture I have coming up in the future. And it's really cool. It's really neat that if you have this project coming up or you're a person who, who works with a piece of software every day, this is a place to find experts who will tell you all about how to do the latest thing with that thing. You need to check this out. And no questions asked. You can do that for seven days. L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart. You have nothing to lose. Go to this buffet of knowledge and get your brain big and fat. Go to lynda.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. 
So how do you react when you see a really horrible, disgusting image? Maybe it's like some roadkill or uh, maybe something came bubbling up in your sink that uh, is unidentifiable and smells horrible. How do you react to that? And do you think that the way that you react to those sort of things says something about the way you might vote in the next election? Well, yeah, maybe so. According to this research, that's the subject of this episode's Self-delusion news, yeah, maybe, because uh, the title of this uh, this press release that comes from Virginia Tech, it says, Liberal or Conservative? Brain responses to disgusting images help reveal political leanings. And this research, it comes from uh, from people at Virginia Tech, Carilion uh, Research Institute, and um, there's a laboratory there that does research into um, psychiatry, psychology, and they do it through uh, human neuroimaging and they have this really cool research that is being published in the latest issue of current biology and an international team of scientists from several different universities came together to uh, do this research. And here's what they, here's what they found. If you have someone look at a horrifyingly disgusting image, I'm talking like uh, a toilet that looks like um, something unspeakable has happened inside of it uh, or a carcass that has been mutilated and has maggots and things falling out of it. Versus looking at images of things that are sort of neutral or even images of things that are nice, like a beautiful landscape or a baby going me. Um, we find that, you know, you can see people's responses to those images differ in a brain scanner. And then you can take those same people and have them do other things and see what correlates. And what they've discovered is that people who look at um, horrifyingly disgusting images and have a very strong uh, involuntary, unconscious reaction. You know, they, the, the things that are happening in their brain, they're not even aware that those things are happening. They might even outwardly pretend or, or even feel consciously that uh, not, they're not having that much of a reaction, but inside in their brain, they are, they've discovered that those people, uh, are more likely to vote in a certain way than people who see those images and don't have that strong of a reaction. The researcher interviewed for this uh, piece, his name is Reed Montague, and the other researchers, they came from University College London, Rice University, the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, Yale University, and uh, we might try to get these people, some of these people on the show because it is a very interesting uh, bit of research. But what they found was, and this is what it says in the press release, uh, quote, responses to disgusting images could predict with 95% to 98% accuracy how a person would answer questions on a political survey. So there's this... Uh, there's a political survey that is used in um, psychological testing that is very accurate. It can really very well tell whether or not you're uh, a liberal or you're a conservative in the American political sense. If you're out there on the liberal side of the spectrum or on the uh, over there on the other side, the conservative side of the uh, political spectrum, which also uh, will help predict whether you will vote Democrat or Republican or independent or or one of the stranger things that uh, people tend to vote for these days. And uh, what they found was that conservatives tend to have the much stronger response to disgusting images. And so, and whereas liberals tend to have not quite as strong of a response. Now we've talked about some of this research before, um, on previous episodes, uh, research that's similar to this and on previous episodes, the, the episode we had with Will store just a little while back on belief, we talked about this. So, um, there's a lot of, um, research that seems to be pointing toward the fact that, um, you know, humans and other animals sort of have a, uh, broadly speaking, can be divided into two categories of um, the, the one kind of person or one kind of animal tends to be okay with unfamiliar situations, tends to seek them out and like 
likes novelty and isn't as afraid or skittish or threatened by uh, uh, by new situations or by unfamiliar situations. And then there's another kind of approach to uh, the unknown in which you, uh, you're you much more cautious and you're much more likely to uh, hold back and not go into strange places, warm up very slowly to strangers, and, and generally be more sensitive to the uh, the possibility of threat and harm. So in, you've probably seen this with... Uh, with animals before with, uh, I, I always think about dogs and cats, you know, some dogs will love everybody and, uh, will just run right into unfamiliar situations, jump into water, go into the woods, that sort of thing. And then others, you know, you can't even pet them. You can't get close to them. They, 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 they're back off and they shy and, uh, they're not likely to, uh, to, to sort of explore all that much. Now, of course, you know, that's a, an oversimplification. I don't think human beings are just like dogs and cats, but it's a, it's a good way to kind of get to that, to that idea. I think human beings also are tend to be to fall into that two different kinds of categories in that way. Broadly speaking, there are people who very much seek out novelty, very much seek out the unfamiliar, and there are people who hold back and they like things to be familiar and they like them to be predictable and they like them to be safe. And it seems that uh, a lot of things that correlate with those two different personality types uh, and those two approaches to the unknown correlate with liberal versus conservative, and so do these images. And and that makes sense because these images. Um, Anything that, that elicits disgust is actually sort of uh, ping, pinging a very primal, evolutionarily uh, determined uh, response to your environment. If you see things that have anything to do with disease um, or uh, parasites or infection or um, you know infestation or um, you know things that are rotting and that are uh, um, dead and decaying, all of those things are dangerous. You know those are all indications of stuff that you shouldn't put in your mouth. Uh, and that if you get too close to it and spend too much time with it, you may also become sick, um, and infested or, or, uh, infected. And of course, if you see something that's been harmed in a horrifying way, that's an indication that, uh, there's something dangerous nearby, either it's a dangerous situation or a predator or whatever. So there are all sorts of things that can play into our speculation as to why this occurs. But we do know for sure that when you put liberals and conservatives in a brain scanner, the liberals tend to not go, as much as the conservatives do when you look at really horrifying and disgusting images. Now, it is worth noting that the lead researcher here, Montague, he said in the press release from the university that um, human beings are unique in their ability to sort of metacognate, at least we think they are. Um, we don't have to be locked down by these primal, uh, you know, these instincts, these evolutionarily determined behavioral routines. We can overcome them and and think and um and not be uh, determined. And so he says that that's what's most important in all of this, that yes, maybe um, those things do determine the way we lean initially. We can think our way out of them most of the time. He, and they actually say in the press, le- press release, what is the takeaway message for election day? And he says, quote, think, don't just react. And the quote continues, but no one needs neuroscience to know that that is a good idea. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today over at youarenotsosmart.com. You can learn more about both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb. You can follow us over at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash youarenotsosmart. Uh, on Twitter, it's at notsmartblog. I'm at David McCraney. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. So go to boingboing.net to learn more about all of that. 
You can head to iTunes or Stitcher or you're not so smart.com or Boing Boing to find all the previous episodes and listen to those episodes. Send your cookie recipes to David at you are not so smart.com and the opening music that's Clash by Caravan Palace and the music beds are by Drew Garraway. <laughs>